This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the director of Church Society, and in this episode I've got lots of podcasting goodies for you from the Church Society's Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference, which was on last week. There'll also be some information about our Living in Love and Faith resources and some creative ways to engage with that whole process as well as a word about our upcoming revitalization ministry webinar, which we're putting on. But first, let me just mention the other big news from the last week or so in the Church of England, which is, of course, the General Synod elections. Elections have been open for the last few weeks, and all over the country, candidates have been speaking in hustings and sending out election addresses to voters in every diocese. The election is important because the General Synod sets both the tone and the policy for the National Church. As you can imagine, this election, which sends delegates to Synod for the next five years, has been especially contested due to the nature of the big issues which would be debated in that next quinquennium, particularly marriage and sexuality. And the good news is that lots of really good candidates have been elected. I was delighted to see how well diocesan evangelical fellowships have worked together to elect candidates all over the country who are evangelical, committed to the gospel, and also committed to traditional biblical and Anglican teaching on sexuality. I think around 40% of the House of Clergy and laity seem to be clearly that way inclined. On the other hand, about that number of people were also elected under the banner of Inclusive Church, so-called, uh, which wants to introduce blessings for same-sex partnerships or even same-sex marriages in church. My hot take on all this, while we digest more slowly all that has happened nationally, is that it seems that the middle ground has been squeezed somewhat by this election. As we might expect, fewer and fewer people are undecided on the big issue of the day. That being said, there was a reasonably good showing for those standing under the banner of Save the Parish too, which reminds us that sexuality is far from being the only issue facing us as a national church. However, uh, on that issue, I would say this. The uh, Living in Love and Faith material has given us chewing gum instead of food, but ultimately there is absolutely nothing in LLF which warrants a change in the church's doctrine or practice. It simply fails to present a sufficient case to justify revision, if that's what some were hoping it would do. The clearer our feedback to the process of discernment on the back of this, the better. And in the same way... This election result, with such strong positive showing for evangelicals and other conservative groups within the church, this election result proves that there is no overwhelming mandate for such a wholesale and divisive change either. The word from the pews and the pulpits to the Episcopal palaces 
is that the Church of England is nowhere near ready to abandon its long-held position on marriage and sexuality, and it doesn't seem to be a desire to do so. There is a so-called blocking minority, at least, and then some, against major doctrinal changes, which, as you may know, require a 67% supermajority to pass. The challenge, however, is to use this to also ensure more sneaky changes don't get introduced, such as uh, same-sex blessing liturgical experiments authorised by the bishops, which don't require any synod majority at all. However, this uh, clearly is not a time for us to spread oracular doom about the future of the Church of England. Many members of Church Society have been elected to Synod, including several council members. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will also, I'm sure, be delighted to hear that our very own Chris Moore, Regional Director of Church Society, and Ros Clark, Associate Director of Church Society, have both been elected to Synod for the first time. I'm sure that we'll hear more from them when the Synod first meets in November. But now, uh, let's turn to the Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference, which was happening last week, as the votes from Synod were still being counted. The theme of the conference was Renewing Our Passion for Godliness. And to begin with, we had Bible readings from Mark Lucas, the rector of the Church Society Parish of St. Botolph's Barton Seagrave with St. Edmund's Walkton in Peterborough Diocese. And I managed to grab a few minutes with him during the conference before we'd heard that he'd been re-elected to General Synod himself to chat about various things. <laughs> I'm here at the uh, Church Society Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference uh, in Northampton, I'm here with the uh, the Bible study speaker, our Bible reading speaker, Mark Lucas. Uh, how are you, Mark? I'm very good, thank you, Lee. It's very nice to be here with you. It's nice to have your smiling face in, <laughs> <laughs> looking back at me when I'm trying to uh, teach the Bible. Do you think that should be one of the main draws of the conference, people yeah. coming to see my smiling I face? I do think so. I think we need a photograph of you to stick <laughs> up on the back wall for every family meet. I think that would scare people off. Now, uh, you are the rector of uh, St Botolph's, Barton Seagrave, with St Edmund's Walkton, a United Benefits, not very... Far away from here in no. Northampton, actually. Um, tell uh, us about that. Yeah, about 10 miles from here. Um, St. Botolph's Spartan Seagrave. Obviously, Lee, you know it very well. You were a curate there many years ago. I was. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> it's, um, well, it's a church society patronage, very normal kind of conservative evangelical parish. Um, I suppose we get a couple of hundred on Sunday morning, or at least we used to until COVID-19. Now it's a bit oh, fewer yes. until people start coming back um how many uh, services do you have because you've got two churches uh well yes uh yeah sometimes it's quite a lot <laughs> at st bottles we have two main services on a sunday sometimes there's a third an early one uh, and then at st edmund's there's one service on a sunday mm. so sometimes it works out that there's well four services in one day which is quite quite a lot that's a lot for, for you <laughs> it is but it's not always that many and um walkton is a delightful little village church, really. So you have a sort of suburban church, which is yeah. a sub Barton Seagrave is a suburb of the bustling metropolis that is Kettering, um, right next to a very famous park. Yes, Wicksteed Park. It is, but Wicksteed Park sadly is not in the parish. I uh, know. 
but it's just there for you to walk around it is if you there. want I to. can walk out of my rectory and be in Wicksteed <laughs> Park in about five minutes. So Fantastic. you've got suburb, you've got rural little village as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's quite a what lot more for you could to you do. Want? Well, exactly. It's a yeah. great, great position. And you're speaking this week at the conference mm-hmm. on the book of Ephesians. Yes. What's so great about Ephesians? What isn't so great about <laughs> Ephesians? Well, F.F. F. Bruce said it is the capstone of Paul's theology. Marvellous. In uh, six chapters encompasses uh, the, God's master plan and how we should live in the light of that master plan. Hmm. Uh, so it is a fantastic read of cosmic scale uh, and just so encouraging for us, I think. As I hope we'll see. Yes, well, we've had one of your talks already, um, speaking to you uh, from the first first day of the conference, um, and we've got two more to come, yep. I think. Um, so it's all about God's strategy to bring glory to himself. That's tomorrow. That's what we're going to hear tomorrow. That's what you're going to hear tomorrow, God and his plan. And what's day three? Day three is God and his church. What's the church for? What is the church? Why do we go to church? Why do we belong to a church? Uh, and, and what is the church... Four. Do we I need to meet to as a church? Can't we just do it on Zoom? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny enough, I thought you might say that. We need to meet together, to be together, to show unity, to bring glory to God. Yes. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Okay, so we're really only looking at chapters 1, 2 and 3. Does that mean we have to get you back another year to look at uh, chapters well, 4, 5 and 6? That would be good. I am dipping into chapters 4, 5 and 6, but in three studies you can't do the whole book. Have you preached it at St Botov's? Uh, I think I have preached, I can't remember. At least once. I've certainly preached through it on more than one occasion. I'm trying to think whether that was at St Botov's. Maybe. How has the recovery from COVID been going at, uh, at Barton Seagrave and well, Walkton? That's interesting because I was talking about that this morning. Um, and it's such a joy to be back in church again. Mm. Such a joy. And people are clearly overjoyed to be back together and meeting together um it's been tempered a little bit over the last week because kettering kettering has been in the last week the um the the highest highest case highest number of cases of covid19 spreading anywhere in the country really yeah highest which has uh concerned a few people they haven't come so those who've been it's just been, well, delightful, wonderful. We still have a few who've not been brave enough to come back. Or Lots not of COVID challenges back. for you, yeah, particularly indeed. where you are. Yeah. And tell me, uh, finally, what, what's the best thing about the FWS conference? You've been quite a lot, haven't you, I have the, been over quite the years? A lot, You've been to many of these things. Yes, I have. I've been coming since, oh, I don't know. Back in the last century, the, the late 1980s, and what historian, historians call the last millennium. But why? Why do you keep coming back? What What is it about the FWS? The best conference thing about the FWS conference is is that you. I feel for me, I can be myself. I've got good friends here. You can uh, fly kites, raise issues, chat through ideas. There's no judgmentalism. Nobody. Mm. Th- there's no party line that you've got to mm. to follow. And there's just a good atmosphere of fellowship here uh, and friendship and it's just a great support Mm. I love it just what you need yeah it's great well it's great to chat to you thank you for taking time out of the uh, busy busy schedule here at the conference to to chat to the uh, podcast listeners oh thank you Lee
The second speaker at the uh, Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference this year was Philip Sauerbutz, who is the minister of Castle Church in Stafford. And he was giving us a very fascinating look at the history of the Keswick Convention, which started in the 19th century, is still going today, but has undergone many changes during that time. And he was particularly looking at those changes and uh, how things had developed in the history of the convention. Uh, I have a few extracts to play for you from uh, his talks. I hope you will enjoy some of the nuggets of gold that we had during Philip's talks. Yeah, one or two people just said it's a fantastic story. It is a fantastic story. It's not just a story, though, is it? Because, I mean, it is part of our church history. And I do believe church history is hugely important. Hugely important in our church. Uh, if we know where we're coming from, we know the mistakes that have been made, we can learn from them, we can see how we have progressed and see how God's hand has been on his church over uh, history. So church history is hugely important. Uh, so don't think it's all about now and the future. It's all about uh, where we've come from as well. So that is really good. Say through the blood of Jesus, but at the same time being dissatisfied with how far short we fall of his perfection. And where we ended up in our last session, we had this new developed higher Christian life pattern holding sway in British evangelicalism, taught and brought to prominence, mainly by the third through the ministry of the Keswick Convention. But before we look on to uh, look into move it, uh, before we move on to looking at objections and changes, it is worth just pausing and looking at a few other elements worth noting at this point. First of all, I don't think everyone who went to Keswick went just to get the holiness blessing, because when you get hundreds, then thousands of Christians together in a lovely part of the country, it's a special time. It's a special time singing, praying, opening scripture together. So lots of people would simply go on Christian holiday there and enjoy a little foretaste of heaven. Second, don't presume that all the speakers all believed the same thing. As we'll see later, some came with a more theological background, some were just very, very winsome speakers. Uh, some of you know Rob Brewis, he's currently doing his PhD thesis on the theology of Bishop Handley Mole, and uh, I've been working with him on that, and uh, we've been talking, I think lots of us who are from a more reformed tradition would struggle to find any major stuff that we disagreed with in either Handley Mole's commentary on Romans or many of his 19th century Keswick sermons. Third, and this is really important, Please don't overcredit the Keswick congregations with a big, clear theological awareness and understanding. People who went to Keswick came from all walks of life. They came from all kinds of educational backgrounds. And for many, they simply just enjoyed the whole Keswick experience. It is a bit like some of the churches that many of us pastor. There might be in our congregation some very, very clued up, theologically aware folk, but lots aren't. 
So don't presume that Keswick was sending back thousands of competent, theologically astute Christians back into their churches. Fourth, Keswick also became a product of the age it was founded. Victorian Romanticism was at its height in the mid-19th century. Obviously, scripture was important in their understanding of how this holiness construct worked. But I think it would be fair to say that other things influenced this kind of crisis experiential theology. Now, there's been some really, really fascinating stuff written on this subject by uh, David Bevington from Stirling University. And uh, I think some of you may know Nick Tucker. Uh, he was his PhD supervisor, uh, because I think uh, Nick has also done some work on 19th century uh, romanticism as well. Uh, but this is a really, really fascinating book. And it's, um, what it is, it's a series of lectures on holiness in the 19th century, and they're subsequently being published. And um, Bevington takes one of his chapters to be romantic influences on the Keswick Convention. So really very, very, very interesting stuff. So Bevington suggests five influences of Victorian Romanticism that impacted the crisis and the heightened emotions, if you like, of the Keswick experience. In other words, how the words that were spoken and the experiences people had there in the tent affected their personal spiritual responses. And the first thing he says is there were poetic inclinations. So sometimes Coleridge and Wordsworth were quoted at length in the sermons of Keswick, as were characters such as Francis Ridley Havergal and Charles Fox. Fox was even affectionately known as the Keswick poet. He said the poetry of the spiritual was one of the most purifying and elevating forces God has given to lift us to himself and out of self. Keswick was a powerhouse. Remember it's funding and supporting missionaries all over the world. They were also prolific in publishing. Their books and transcribed sermons, The Life of Faith, and later renamed The Keswick Week, were sent all over the world, mainly to support and encourage missionary work. They also supported the many hundreds of regional Keswicks in this country and abroad. And as I said in the last session, people loved Keswick. They trusted Keswick. And by the late 1950s, there was a group of speakers that were really revered and trusted in the British evangelical world. And people will go out of their way to go and sit under their ministry. George Duncan, affectionately known as Mr. Keswick. I was to Jim about him this morning because he just said he had him to come and preach. Uh, is it 125th or 150th birthday? 150th birthday of uh, St. James Carlisle, because he was the former uh, minister there. But then there are other characters you may not have heard of, people like Stephen Alford. Uh, but then people like Alan Redpath, who maybe some of you will have heard of, Herbert Craig. Herbert Craig was the vicar of the church that I, uh, where I grew up in, in Blackburn, uh, Church of the Saviour of Blackburn. From America, Paul Rees, and then there was a guy called Bertie Rainsbury, A.W. Rainsbury, just to name but a few. And I remember in the very, very early 1970s being taken as a very young boy to hear Alan Redpath speak. 
and I still remember sitting in that side aisle of that church and listening to him speak. All I remember as a young boy is that he went wrong for a really long time. <laughs> but it's interesting, we're 40, 50 years on from those times. And I think it'd be fair to say that higher life holiness has pretty much disappeared from the evangelical landscape in the UK. So what happened? Well, some of these Keswick preachers were beginning to get a bit older. And so the chairman, A.T. Horton, mentioned him yesterday in the last session, the principal of Tyndale House and chairman of the Keswick Convention Council, was responsible for raising up a new generation of preachers for Keswick. And he began to introduce them onto the Keswick platform in the early 60s. Among them, as I said yesterday, Philip Hacking, Dick Lucas, Alec Atiyah, Ken Pryor, Eric Alexander, and of course Richard Buse. The first thing that they were invited to do was go and lead the young people's meeting. Let's try and out with the young people first. And then they graduated onto the main platform. It's interesting, in my conversations with Alec Natia, he was really, really fascinating to talk to. Because he told me that they were kept on a very, very tight lead. So remember the Monday to Friday God-given sequence. It was still very much in place in the early 60s. Well, they were sometimes given Mondays, Tuesdays, very occasionally Wednesdays, but absolutely weren't trusted with Crisis Night on the Thursday. And also, if any of them ever preached a sermon that called for a kind of radical change of heart, asking God's Spirit to work in the lives of the congregation, one of the old God would come and tell them off. And as Alec Matthias said, they said, remember, no crisis till Thursday. But the problem was, these guys on the whole were good Oxbridge educated, clever boys. But they didn't hold with this theology of higher life, second blessing holiness theology. Like I said, I was really privileged to talk to some of them, many of whom are now, of course, promoted to glory. But I was intrigued, so I asked them all the same question. And the question was this, why did they accept an invitation to preach at Keswick if they didn't agree with Keswick holiness theology? Seems like a logical question to ask. Their answers support my claim as to just how influential Keswick was within the National Evangelical Church, because they all pretty much replied with the same answer. The answer was this, back then, it was the highest honour you could have to be asked to speak at Keswick. I suppose important questions could be asked as to how Keswick doctrine of holiness and higher life disappeared and whether it was the right way to do it and whether it was the, you know, the right course of action. In his letters to me, Jim Packer said this, the change in Keswick was evidently intended to take place without any explicit awareness by its supporters that the change was being made. It was made by using Bible expositors like E.F. Kevin and then John Stott. It remains a question whether this was the most straightforward course of action. It is interesting that for some, the message uh, that Keswick has radically changed hasn't quite got through. I was incredibly disappointed at some comments made by John Piper about Keswick just a few years ago, criticizing Keswick's holiness theology. His criticisms were at least 40 years out of date.
Church Society is a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. One thing we're really focusing on is church revitalisation. In many places it might be the best way to reach local people with the good news of Jesus. In some places it might be the only way. In partnership with Renew, Church Society is offering a series of bi-monthly webinars to connect, encourage and equip people in this ministry. It can be challenging. It can be isolating. But God is calling more and more people to do it. If you are one of those people, or you are thinking about it, or you just want to know more about it, please join us. The next Church Revitalisation webinar is on Wednesday the 10th of November at 1pm. The theme will be Revitalisation as Mission. As well as a presentation on this theme, there will be a spotlight on rural ministry, time for questions and then discussion in regional breakout groups. With thanks to George Crowder there, our regional director in the north, for that brief public service announcement about the forthcoming revitalisation ministry webinars that are coming up soon. I hope many of you will enjoy those and benefit from them greatly. We return now to the Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference where we were thinking about renewing our passion for godliness and we're going to listen in now to a, an extract from one of Ros Clark's seminars on godliness in the online world. Different expressions people use, different kinds of etiquette that people have. And you kind of have to take a little moment to get used to those, to understand how that works. And the same, I think, is true online. Online in general, but also each online community will have its own forms of etiquette, its own ways of expressing things, um, its own set of local norms. But those forms of etiquette and expression don't change the fact that online or offline, we are all dealing with the same humanity, for good and for ill. And that means that godliness in the online world is fundamentally the same as godliness in the offline world. So I think I might as well just sit down now and say, well, everything we have been learning and thinking about, just do that. I mean, I think it ought to be obvious. But perhaps from the way that many Christians behave online, it may seem that it is not. And I want first, before we go on to think about how we can behave in a godly way online, to think about some of the reasons why it may not be obvious and why it may be more difficult and why there may be particular <coughs> temptations and struggles in the online world that are different from the offline world. I mean, there's quite a large part of me sitting there going, no, obviously not, you're, you're wrong. Let me sort of think, I don't think that, what did I see that I don't? And once again, our minds are much more easily led by other people, particularly in large groups, than we realise. Anyway, and maybe it's different depending where you are in the online world, but I think that crowd psychology 
often happens, and I think we see it um, in quite a lot of the uh, kinds of things actually that, that are in the living and loving paper, particularly the transgender stuff, but also uh, stuff around uh, sexuality and non-binary and, and gender queerness and all of that kind of thing. Being online, it allows you to find your tiny little niche, a lot of people who are like you. And then if you can begin to dominate a conversation, say it again and again and again, people hear it again and again and again. They see it all over the place, what feels like all over the place, because the algorithm is pointing you to the content that's similar to what you've already seen. And you begin to think differently. And you don't even notice that you are doing it. It can be really dangerous. And finally, similarly thinking about the sort of crowdness of online, the tyranny of the majority, cancel culture, mob culture. What have I got here? Oh, okay, that was a bandwagon bias. But here, the internet mob mentality, the pile of <coughs> Somebody says something, and maybe they're wrong. What, ha what happens in a normal conversation? What you say, I think about that. You're in a small group. A few of you say, oh, I think you're wrong about that. Uh, yeah, and also, because I think maybe also it would mean this. You're wrong about that. You're wrong online. The first person tells you. The second person tells you. The hundredth person tells you. The five thousandth person tells you. Hundred and fifty thousandth person tells you. How do you feel being told how wrong you are a hundred and fifty thousand times? You can hear more from all of these talks at the Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference. Eventually, they'll be put online on our website at churchsociety.org. One of the greatest moments of the conference, I think, was when I was able to get all of the speakers to sit down and have a panel discussion and a Q&A session with them. And we put various questions to each of the members of the panel. Since we haven't heard from him already, uh, I'm going to play now an extract from Martin Davies' answer to the question, Is the Church of England holy? Martin Davy is the theological consultant for the Church of England Evangelical Council and is a very clear and uh, courageous speaker on many issues. So here's his answer to the question that we put to him, Is the Church of England holy? So, no, I was going to say that you can answer this question in several legitimate ways. First of all, you can say that, I think we can say that Church of England, as in the canons, is part of the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, because it yes. is, yeah. otherwise it wouldn't be a church at all. It's part of the, so, so in that sense, yes. Secondly, as an institutional body, as, of, as what, the, what the articles call a visible church, yeah. it is necessarily a mixed body, yeah. just as we are mixed people. And there are elements of holiness, and there are elements of unholiness in its life and behaviours. But, viewed from God's viewpoint, within the Church of England, there is the Church invisible. The church as it is before God, yeah. redeemed by Christ, which is absolutely and totally holy. Yeah. Yeah. Now that church is not coterminous with the Church of England for the simple reason that the Church of England is like, as the famous parable of the wheat and the tares, mm. in the Church of England there are people who are genuinely mm. 
saved people who genuinely do belong to God and there are nominal believers who don't. Mm. And so you have to make that distinction between the invisible church, which exists within the Church of England, the visible church, and the Church of England as part of the big thing of what God is doing in history the Catholic Church. So that, that will be my three-level answer. Mm. Very good. It's nearly a year since the Church of England launched their Living in Love and Faith resources and asked churches and uh, individuals to engage with them and send in their responses. Those responses will begin to be assessed from the beginning of November and we would love to encourage you uh, to send in as many responses as you can. People can uh, fill out the survey, uh, they don't have to have taken the whole course, they may have watch some of the videos, they may have read some of the content on the webpage, uh, but also we'd love you to be sending in creative responses. And to help with that, we have a number of resources at churchsociety.org. In particular, I want to draw your attention to two colouring pages that you can download. These are suitable uh, even for young children to use, but certainly for teenagers and adults. You might want to encourage your whole youth group or your whole Sunday school to colour them in and submit photos of their work. Perhaps encourage some of the older ones to talk about their own response to living in love and faith and what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality. The posters use the phrase, true love loves truth, which is a thing that even the youngest children can understand, uh, that it's not loving when you lie to somebody, and that God, who loves us above all things, does not lie to us, that we find the truth that he teaches us in his word, and that's how we know he loves us. So please do go and have a look at all the Living in Love and Faith resources on the Church Society website. There are videos introducing the process, there are courses helping to teach your congregation about some of these issues, and there are various suggestions for how you might respond. so much for listening to this episode of the church society podcast you can find the whole podcast archive on our website churchsociety.org don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app and we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well mm-hmm.